Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, happy heat wave. It's going it's to pick up tomorrow, at least in this part of the country. Uh, we'll see you know, how, how it travels and where it goes, but we're looking at 103 degrees tomorrow here in Oregon. So, uh, wow. Anyhow, a lot on the program today. Dave Lindorf has a, an amazing new piece out in The Nation about a toxic coastal landfill, something that wasn't even on my radar screen. And I want to share with you all but I want to start out with climate. The headline of my daily rant today at HartmanReport.com is climate change. Will America wait until it's too late? And the point I keep making, you know, the IPCC came out with this report and the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, said this moment represents a code red for humanity. He said there's no time for delay and no room for excuses. And so the Democrats are proposing a three and a half trillion dollar bill in the United States, you know, Congress, and right now it's in the Senate, that will go a long way toward mitigating climate change while at the same time strengthening our social safety net as more and more of us are coming under attack from climate change. And it's wrecking neighborhoods and stressing power systems and all kinds of things. And what do the Republicans have to say? Nope, we're not going to have anything to do with that. Sorry, forget it. Ain't going to happen. And we've got a couple of Democrats that we're waiting to see where they're going to fall on this thing. Cinema, Mansion, maybe Coons and Carper, maybe Feinstein. I mean, you know, we're just waiting to see which, which of these Democrats are going to stand up and say, yes, we're with the people. We need to do something about climate change. Three and a half trillion dollars is a drop in the bucket compared to the cost of climate change to the United States. And we need to change our infrastructure and make it more resilient and less carbon emitting. The IPCC report says that we can burn another 500 billion tons of carbon worldwide before we hit this 1.5 degree absolute wall. And once you hit that wall, all bets are off. And we're burning fossil fuels, we're putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere right now at the rate of a little over 50 billion tons a year. So 500 billion tons is 10 years, and then it's got to go to zero. Well, there's no way in hell we're going to go to zero 
in 10 years, which means we need to start reducing dramatically. If we can cut by 50% over the next two or three years, then you know we can get to zero over 12, 15 years, maybe. But it's going to literally take a multi-trillion dollar investments here in the United States. This is not something you and I can do by, by you know, walking to work or riding our bicycles or turning off our light bulbs or replacing incandescent bulbs with LEDs or even buying an electric car. This is not something that you and I can take care of. Yes, we should you know, try to modify our lifestyle and reduce our carbon footprint to whatever extent is reasonable. But it's not about, and, 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 uh, and by the way, and I guarantee you that the right-wingers and the Republicans are all saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, Al Gore flies in his own private plane. How dare he? Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. How big is, how big is uh, you know, fill in the blanks uh, house? When actually the issue is that we're still subsidizing the fossil fuel industry to the tune of over $1.2 trillion worldwide and over $300 billion a year here in the United States. That's our tax dollars that we give to the fossil fuel industry, that we give to the fossil fuel billionaires. And we are not taking that kind of money or anything even close to it and throwing it in a major way in the United States into programs that would stop climate change. We need to solarize every house in America. We need to put electric charging stations all over the place. We need to replace outdated power plants and centralized you know, uh, power generation stations with distributed power generation. We need to have neighborhoods producing their own electricity through rooftop solar and neighborhood uh, you know, uh, load balancing systems. There, none of this is technology that is impossible. It's already in place in, in large part in countries like Germany. I mean, they started on this literally 20 years ago. And they're, they're shutting down their last nuclear power plant this year or next year, I believe, uh, within the next couple of years in any place. Okay, it's going entire, you know, I mean, this is just major going to solar. We could do it here, too. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Only the Republicans and a couple of Democrats who are taking money from the fossil fuel billionaires would get on board and, and stop just looking at their money. Okay, just to put a punctuation point on this climate change thing and, and asking the question, you know, will America wait until it's too late? Because a time will come when it is too late, when, when humanity is just basically screwed, when the possibility of maintaining something that appears to be civilization starts slipping through our fingers. It has already started happening in North Africa and Central America. We are seeing governments crashing as a result of climate change. All those Syrian farmers in North Syria, where the desert came south over 100 miles, all across North Africa, but in Syria in particular, where the desert came south 100 miles, about a half a million, I believe it was, farmers ended up in Damascus, in the main city in Syria, homeless. And they started protesting, demanding at least food and shelter. And uh, Bashar Assad, the, you know, the, the dictator of Syria, his response was to have the police go in and shoot them which started this uprising, which led to a civil war that you know, we got involved in and the Russians got involved in because they've got a huge military base there. 
And you now have a city that's been reduced to rubble. You've got, a, you know, a culture that is in crisis. And it's not just Syria. You know, Tunisia, where the whole thing started with that street vendor setting himself on fire because the price of wheat had gone through the roof, again, because of climate change. You know, that, that's the one democracy that came out of the Arab Spring. Egypt lost their democracy as a result of the Arab Spring. They're now a military dictatorship. The one democracy left, and they're tottering on the edge because of all this pressure. The global warming is hitting the, you know, those areas that are more or less uh, around the equator and, and, you know, between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, basically. But it is moving. It is moving north and south, but for our concerns here in North America and Europe, it's moving north relentlessly. It's going to be 103 here in Portland tomorrow. And the big concern now is this AMOC, the AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional or Meridional or Meridional, I don't know how to pronounce it, overturning uh, circulation system, the AMOC. This is uh, what you and I generally refer to as the Gulf Stream, the water that flows up, you know, from it starts off the coast of Southeast Asia, goes down south of South Africa, comes up along the east coast of South America, Central America, and then, you know, produces the, the Gulf, you know, warms the Gulf of Mexico and goes up the east coast of the United States and then goes out into the ocean and just south of Greenland, it sinks. And, and now Greenland is the glaciers are melting and pouring fresh water into it and it's causing it to collapse or to be on the verge of collapsing. And Science Daily today, a new study published in Nature Climate Change says the, the major North Atlantic cur, Atlantic Ocean current with, to which the Gulf Stream also belongs may have been losing stability in the course of the last century. It's currently at its weakest in more than 1,000 years. Nick Bowers from the uh, Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research says, and I quote, the loss of dynamic stability would imply that the AMOC has approached the, its critical threshold beyond which is a substantial and in practice likely irreversible transition to the weak mode could occur. Are we gonna wait until it's too late? If the Gulf Stream shuts down, all bets are off. Everything changes in both the North and summer, Southern Hemisphere. World Weather around the world will completely and radically change. And animals, plants, and humans who are adapted to a, the particular climate where they live are suddenly going to be living in a completely different climate. And that is going to be insanely disruptive. So let's pick up your phone calls and see what you have to say about all this. Carmen in uh, Bitterroot Valley, yeah. Montana? Yes, sir. Hey, what's um, up? Yeah, if, you, if, you go to, if you go to Missoula and you watch the, the train traffic through there, it's dominated by coal trains, and they all, they're all heading toward um, Washington to dump the coal into the awaiting ships that take it to China. I understand they have 1,200, maybe to 1,400 coal-fired plants that are producing their electricity. But over here, you can find all the soot on the mountains in Glacier Park and all the snow that's in the... Well, we don't have much snow this, this year. It's getting worse and worse. Uh, in fact, the rivers are starting to dry up. And I've never seen that before. This is the first year I've ever seen that. Wow. And that's on the Bitterroot River. I'm watching the Bitterroot Drive. So the rest of them are probably drying up, too. You know, there just wasn't enough snow here this year. But that coal fire, they, they could just stop sending all that coal that comes out of coal strip 
to uh, Everett, where those uh, big barges are waiting to take them straight to China. Yeah. It was like, you know, like when they were talking about stealing our champagne water out of the Great Lakes when the Chinese were dragging those bladders through there with ocean-going ocean tugs and hauling it back to China. I don't know what for. I guess to drink. I don't know. Yeah. But that, that was a, a while back. Yeah. But I just wish they'd stop selling the coal. But there's money yeah, to be made, Carmen. These, <laughs> there is well, money to be made selling coal to the Chinese. So, oh, my God. But two, two to 300 cars for each. There's six diesels running three on each end yeah. you know, to get it over the hills. But it never stops coming all day, all day, all night, all night, all day. Just never stops 24-7. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. yeah. We, we really need to be working on this issue and and a carbon tax would go a long way toward reducing the the enthusiasm for purchasing that kind of stuff carmen thanks a lot for the heads up on that it's it's amazing earl in hyde park illinois hey earl what's up hey tom thank you for taking my call and i'm gonna try to uh piggyback off of carmen that little bit but first i'm gonna indicate to you that the last time you were talking about climate last week i wanted to uh let you know that i was an avid gardener Mm -hmm. And in the process of gardening over 20 years, I've noticed that the amount of birds and the variety of birds here in Chicago have drastically dropped. I mean, notice, really, not really noticeably dropped as far as the variety and numbers of species that are here. And, and I had a lot of pollinators when I first got started with my garden 20 years ago. The number of uh, pollinators up to last year, has drastically dropped. I mean, yeah. substantially dropped. So, like I told your producer, we used to be able to drive across Chicago and, you know, go out towards the suburbs, and there'd be bug juice all over our windshield, and we'd have to constantly use our windshield wipers to clean the bug juice off. I rarely, rarely have to use the windshield wipers except to remove bird droppings now. Yeah. So the climate is definitely changing. It's affecting our wildlife in ways that we're not paying attention to. And for what uh, Carmen was saying, and I will piggyback off of him and say, I think Joe Manson and some of the other senators are in the pockets of the uh, gas and oil industry. And coal and, for Joe Manchin. Yeah, yeah, coal too. And uh, with that big money going into Congress and legislators, I don't think we're going to have uh, significant changes in our practices because of the lack of Americans not understanding the, the critical and the dire place we find ourselves ecologically in this world. Yeah. As long as they can see meat on the shelf, canned goods on the shelf, milk and uh, juice on the shelf, you know, that's all they, you know, relate to. Yeah. So... Well, it's the changes now are subtle enough that, you know, the average person who lives on a junk food diet or a fast food diet and only watches Fox News doesn't have a clue. But anybody who's gardening, anybody who spends any time outdoors in nature, anywhere in this country, anybody who's paying attention to the weather, anybody who's reading the international news about what's happening in the areas that are really being hard hit by climate change right now knows how bad this is and obviously earlier one of them thank you very much for the call and for sharing that with us paul and zilla washington listening on kbcs hey paul what's up good morning tom hey paul uh you mentioned that you were considering putting in solar panels i'm calling to encourage yes. you to do that 
Yeah. Be a trim tab for green energy. Oh, well, absolutely. Um, it's on our list. It's just the, the challenge right now is finding a good contractor and a reasonable price. It's uh, the stuff good. we've been getting is good. just all over the map. Yeah, we we put them in 12 years ago, even though it you know didn't look like it was cost effective because we felt it was an important thing to do. And uh, ours are now just getting paid for, and we have long ago replaced the uh, carbon involved in production. And mm-hmm. at the moment, we're sending uh, electrons in the grid. We're with Pacific Power, the same company I believe you're with, and 50% of their electricity is generated by coal powered plant. Yeah, no, we get, really we get our power from a company called PGE, which is not Pacific Gas and Electric. It's uh, right, Portland good, yeah. Gas and Electric, I think. Yeah. Portland, well, I know Portland that General, uh, Pacific Power does a lot of Portland, too. So Yeah. So anyway, you're one of those people who uh, has a large following. You put in solar panels. That's going to encourage somebody else. So yeah, go for it, Tom. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Good to hear from you, and you thanks bet. for the words of encouragement. Jason in Pittsburgh. Hey, Jason, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm just calling because I wanted to talk about the intersection of climate change and living with a disability and just how there's not much representation or even research and and knowledge about this. I was diagnosed with MS back in 2018. I went to school for sustainability, so this is something that's really on the forefront of my mind lately. I'll give you just an example. Last year, I had a relapse like for two months, and it was during a heat wave in Pittsburgh. The Midwest, not everybody has air conditioning. So we, I only had one AC unit in the window. So it's basically confined to one room. If I step outside, I get really sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so these things that are really on my forefront of my mind, um, like if you get into looking at people living with disabilities, like Hurricane Maria, for example, a lot of the deaths that came after the fact, weeks after when people couldn't refrigerate insulin or, you know, their you know, ventilators went because they didn't have electricity. Um, so these are all the things that, like, really are at the forefront of my mind. I actually, from last year when I was sick and basically confined to one room, I uh, came up with an idea to actually create a nonprofit that focuses just on that. Mm-hmm. And it stems from actually back in 2018 when I was diagnosed. I was actually in the hospital a couple of days after getting diagnosed. And I uh, decided, you know, it was really kicking the butt. And I decided, you know, I was really going to try to pursue protecting the environment. So I applied for, got selected for an international expedition to the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And um, when I got up up north, uh, it was pretty terrifying. I was only a few hundred miles from the North Pole, and I had to shed layers and was hiking in a T-shirt. But um, getting back to the disability part, um, I'm just worried that we're not going to put enough emphasis on that. And I was just curious if you knew any programs that were designed or, or coming that, that would focus on this subject to, to really protect people because globally about 60% of people with disabilities live below the poverty line so they're not going to have the adequate education or resources to really adapt to the changes that we're going to see. I know many of the things that Bernie has proposed for this $3.5 trillion bill would benefit people with disabilities as well as everybody else but your example is a perfect illustration Jason of how whenever you look at these brutal neoliberal policies that are being promoted by Republicans and the so-called conservative Democrats, whether it's their austerity programs, you know, cutting back on welfare programs, reducing the amount for food stamps, cutting back on health care programs, or whether it's, you know, the really obscene stuff like, uh, you know, opposing any kind of climate change legislation, the consequences of that are measurable. 
but they always fall hardest on the disabled community, always. And that that is something that just, you know, doesn't get talked about enough. And I really appreciate your making that point on the program, Jason. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Like I was going to just, for, for example, I'm part of um, Climate Reality, and we were preparing for Earth Day, Pittsburgh, a large celebration with multiple organizations. And even within the climate activist community, um, it's still not even talked about because we had every demographic pretty much represented. When I raised my hand, is like, anybody going to speak about people with disabilities? And there wasn't even a plan for that. Yeah. With some of, you know, obviously the most open-minded people. So just something that, thank you for letting me speak about it, because even this hopefully spreads some awareness. Yep. Amen. Jason, thank you. Thank you very much. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo, what's up? Thank you, Tom, again, for taking my call. Yeah, my two cents about climate change. I think the single most powerful thing an individual can do for climate change is to go vegan, to adopt a plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. Or you even know, partially. If people, if people just cut out the meat from their diet just four or five days a week, it makes a huge change, yeah. A, in your health, and B, it improves the quality of the world, basically. Yeah, 70 to 80% of the rainforests are being chopped down just to put livestock in there. Yep. At least 80% of all the diseases that we know come from eating animals. Yep. So this is a great thing for, for empowering people to do something themselves to help climate change. Thank and, you, Tom. Yeah, excellent point, Alfredo. And now you've got, I mean, for people who are like, oh, I gotta have a burger. Beyond meat and impossible foods, these two meat yes. substitutes, you know, that are made from, uh, the Beyond Meat is made from pea protein. Plant. You know, they're both yeah. made from plant protein. I don't know what uh, Impossible is made from. But the Impossible Whoppers at Burger King taste just they're like, delicious. They're, oh, they're spectacular. And that's a fast yeah. food joint, right? And, so, you know, yeah. the Beyond Meat products, you know, Louise got some Beyond Meat burgers and made burgers for us. And I'm like, this is a little too much like meat. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's like, so, but a meat <laughs> eater would have absolutely loved yeah. it. I mean, it's been, you know, 60 years, 55 years since I've eaten meat. So, yeah, know, there is no excuse today to yeah, there is no excuse today to keep eating animals. Yeah. yeah. I'm with Thank you, you Alfredo. Yeah. Thank you. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery 
starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Meat Racket, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business by Christopher Leonard. Uh, This is from the prologue. Uh, It's titled The Hidden King. Nobody ever visits the stranded little community of Waldron, Arkansas. But even if they did, a tourist would never see the place for what it really is. Most outsiders would be fooled into thinking it was an actual small town. On any given morning, the residents awaken and begin their routine along Main Street. Old men park their pickup trucks by the curb in front of the Rock Cafe, which opens early for breakfast. As the cafe's booths and tables fill up, a congregation of old-timers and cowboy hats gathers in a loose ring of aluminum chairs out front, smoking and talking and stubbing out their cigarette butts in a bucket full of sand. Later in the morning, Chambers Bank in the south end of town opens up, and the tellers cheerfully greet customers by name. On Thursday at noon, the livestock auction opens in a cavernous barn on the north side of town, drawing crowds of ranchers who haul steel trailers behind their trucks, with cows staring out between the horizontal slats. In the late afternoon, teenagers park their cars by the gazebo south of the auction barn, proudly displaying their Mustangs and Broncos like big game trophies. These events have a rhythm of their own, the clockwork functioning of a small town economy. But it's all just window dressing. All of it would cease to exist in a moment and have no impact whatsoever on the true Waldron or its true economic reason for being. The real tempo of the town's economic pulse is measured by the coming and going of semi-trucks that roll down Main Street at periodic intervals, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In the middle of the night, tanker trucks full of animal feed rumble past the empty stores and out onto country roads that lead into the hilly terrain that surrounds town. At dawn, other trucks trundle in from the hills, heaped high with battered metal crates full of chickens that exude clouds of white feathers along the highway. The tempo can be measured in the regular arrival of train cars full of grain and oil seeds that dump their loads at a feed mill that clanks and hums and churns all night. And in the parade of refrigerated trucks that pull up to a slaughterhouse near the feed mill and get loaded with pallets of frozen meat. This is the real functioning of Waldron, Arkansas, and its true reason for being. This is the heartbeat of Tyson Foods. The Tyson plant on the north end of Waldron is the only thing that keeps the town on the map. Appropriately, many residents simply refer to it as the complex. That's because the Tyson plant isn't just a factory. It's more like an entire small-town economy consolidated into one property. The complex contains its own feed mill and hatchery, its own trucking line and slaughterhouse that covers several acres of land and processes about one million dead chickens a week. The complex is like an economic dark star that has drawn into itself all the independent businesses that used to define a small town like Waldron, kinds of businesses that were once the economic pillars of rural America. Of course, tourists to Waldron would never see the Tyson plant, and not just because it sits on the north fringe of town away from Main Street. Visitors are stopped at its front gate and forbidden from exploring its grounds. So a tourist would have to be content to stroll along the sidewalks downtown, observing the fake Main Street, the deceptive array of little businesses that make it seem like a community. This illusory appearance cloaks Tyson's existence all the way from its roots in rural America, 
to the grocery store shelves and restaurant menus where its products finally reach American consumers. The average shopper is usually fooled when he or she peruses the meat aisle, seeing what appears to be an abundance of choices and products. Tyson brand name wouldn't necessarily stand out with its logo gracing just a handful of products. But the rotisserie chicken slowly turning in its oven, the Bonisi brand pepperoni, the Lady Astor brand chicken cordon bleu, the frozen chicken pot pie, and the right brand bacon all come from the same company, Tyson. And then there is all the unlabeled meat that Tyson floods into the U.S. food system every day. The meat served in cafeterias, nursing homes, fast food restaurants, and suburban eateries where more and more Americans eat their meals. There's a very good chance any of the meat purchased in these places was made by Tyson. Even if Tyson did not produce a given piece of meat, the consumer is really only picking between different versions of the same commodified beef, chicken, and pork that is produced throughout a system that Tyson pioneered. Tyson's few competitors have resorted to imitating the company's business model just to survive. This book aims to explore the vast hidden territory between the remote farms and towns like Waldron, where Tyson raises millions of animals, and the final point of contact where consumers buy the company's meat. Unseen between these two poles is a hidden power structure that has quietly reshaped U.S. rural economies while gaining unprecedented control over the nation's meat supply. Just a handful of companies produce nearly all the meat consumed in the United States, and Tyson is the king among them. The company sits atop a powerful oligarchy of corporations that determines how animals are raised, how much farmers get paid, and how meat is processed, all while reaping massive profits and remaining almost entirely opaque to the consumer. Because Tyson and its imitators are based in the geographic and economic fringes of America in forgotten places like Waldron, the company has managed to escape the scrutiny it deserves. While Tyson's operations are remote, the company's business practices affect virtually everyone. About 95% of Americans eat chicken, which means they almost certainly eat chicken produced by Tyson. And then it goes on from there. The book is The Meat Rack, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Industry by Christopher Leonard. On the line with us is Dave Lindorf. Dave is an investigative journalist, a contributor to The Nation, also the author of several books, including The Case for Impeachment, and the founder of ThisCan'tBeHappening.net. This particular article you can find at The Nation. Are toxic coastal landfills going to kill us all? I mean, this is pretty, pretty alarming stuff. Dave, welcome back to the program. How many landfills are there in the United States, and how many of them are near our coasts, and why should we worry about that? The best estimate comes from some decade or so ago from the EPA, which has paid very little attention to them, that there are 100,000 landfills in the country and that half of them approximately, so 50,000, lie in the 30-odd counties that border one of the nation's coasts. That would include rivers or just just ocean no, coasts? No, that's just coastlines, Atlantic Gulf and Pacific, and Hawaii and Alaska are on the Pacific, so they're included. These are all landfills that are within 10-foot sea level of the ocean. That's kind of the defining of being on the coast. So the assumption is, then, that if global warming caused sea level rise, and the sea level is rising, but it's just been a few centimeters in the last few years, but if that starts becoming inches and then feet, that these landfills will be 
what infiltrated with water that they that their the toxic waste in them will spread to to other places that it'll poison i mean what what's the outcome well, the, the initial thing that will happen is that the bottoms will be infiltrated because most of these landfills, all but a few thousand of them, are legacy landfills that never had liners on the bottom. They just were the way you know people would dig right. a trench or, or put, have a gravel pit or something, and they'd just start filling it up. Or later, they started piling them on the coast. They've all, always been piled up on the land because if you dig down a foot or two, you're in water. So... The first thing that will happen is you'll have salt infiltration into the bottoms, which can lift them up or destroy any kind of pumping systems they have to try to keep them dry. But later, the worst problems are going to be surface water coming in so that these mounds of garbage will become islands of garbage, and then they get wrecked by the waves and the dirt comes off the plastic tops get destroyed if they are there and they all end up in the water in coastal waters that are very important and vulnerable and we're not talking about being concerned about you know a, a 1925 refrigerator floating out to sea here uh, this is much more than that Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, everything went into these dumps historically. These are dumps that can go back 150 years, and every county has them, multiple of them. Some towns had, uh, you know, many landfills. They'd use up one, they'd start another and bury the first one, forget where it was, uh, maybe. <laughs> and the the thing is that when America was more industrialized, you had companies everywhere doing chemical work, doing, you know, uh, work that involved uh, oil oil solvents, uh, paints, you know, everything. And it all went into the dump. They didn't have any rules about what could go in a dump that started in the 1980s that the federal government started putting restrictions on what could go in a landfill, one of the few rules they've made about landfills. So we don't even know. Nobody had to log what they put in. If you had chemical companies or companies that used chemicals in your community, that company just drove trucks up and dumped it into the dump. Wow. So what do we do about this, Dave? Well, the best thing to do, and what Hank Wanless, the uh, expert on sea level rise at University of Miami, told me is the only real solution is to move these things before they're inundated. Uh, because it'll be real expensive to move them after the water starts surrounding them. Uh, and that's a huge job. I, I mean, I've heard estimates of about a trillion dollars to move them all, all the vulnerable ones. Although that's over maybe a period of 20 to 30 years if you triage it right and move the ones that need to be moved first. And right. so it isn't as much money this, as it sounds like. And if like. this doesn't get done, and I'm guessing in all probability it won't, I mean, you know, if we're <laughs> right. talking climate change remediation, I think that they're going to be putting money into moving buildings and people long before they put it into moving landfills. If this doesn't happen, it's going to what? poison the oceans? Is that the concern? I mean, we were dumping this stuff well, in the oceans for gonna, a long time, too. You know, the, ocean's, the ocean's pretty big. I don't think that's the major problem. The problem is that the wetlands get poisoned, and they're already they're extremely vulnerable because uh -huh. they're starting to get red tides and all of that from the increased heat. And the thing about wetlands is that aside from the fact that people live in them and that they feed the water table for you know people to get drinking water and stuff, they also are where about 70% of the sea life in the ocean have some part 
of their breeding cycle. They either lay their eggs there or they they function as nurseries so that the young of whatever you know, species you're talking about from clams and shellfish to, you know, major fish and turtles and all of that have to have that, you know, they, they either have to grow up there, they, they either breed there, they swim through and go upriver like salmon and eels and shad, or more, most of them just have their young there, lay their eggs, and then the young grow up you know, through one say one summer or and one this, year, and, and then they come out to poisoned. sea. Yeah. Now the, yeah, you're talking true. about the United States. I, I, the study that I saw in the, this article that, that you wrote for the Nation, and we're talking with Dave Lindorf, who's got this new piece in the Nation, the investigative journalist and contributor to the Nation, t- uh, titled uh, "Toxic Coastal Landfills Are They Going to Kill Us All Off?" You cited a study in Great Britain. I mean, this is this is happening literally all over the world, and I would think that it's particularly bad in uh, low-lying island nations, you know, the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, like that. Is, is there any, is the, is the IPC, well, maybe it's not the IPCC's charge, is the UN looking at this? I mean, is there, anybody taking this seriously? Nobody is taking it seriously. I mean, the, the problem with the, the international picture, which is more, in some ways more horrible than the U.S., is that we and Europe are dumping our garbage in coastal communities in places like Ghana and Cameroon and stuff that, that it's right on the water. And so we're contributing to all of that in the Philippines and, as, and Indonesia, as you mentioned. The third world countries are happy to take the garbage some of them, and used to be China, they stopped. But, you know, it's a source of income for them, and and it's cheaper for us to ship that stuff there than to use a landfill. So the, the message for the people who are listening or watching the program, other than, holy crap, there's another one, um, is, <laughs> is what? Uh, we uh, raise this with our elected officials? Is there something to point to? Is there a group that's working on this? Well, well, there aren't any groups. When I did this story, everybody said, whoa, I didn't think of that. You know, even hmm. coastal defense groups said, whoa, we didn't think about the landfills. It's incredible. And it's not seen as a, it, sometimes if they'd see it in the air dump, they didn't see it in the larger picture, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing that has to be done and the EPA actually recognized it. And I have a quote in the piece from the EPA saying in writing, they, they would only see me in writing. And they said, you know, we realize this is serious. We realize that something needs to be done about it. And we realize there should be a study to log where all these landfills are and what's in them. But then they said EPA has no plans to do a study. And I'm thinking, what? That's probably because they have no resources. Well, yeah, but that's really now that shouldn't be true. And and that's a that's a cheap thing to do and find out what the risks are and what's in the. So encourage your elected officials to encourage the EPA to do a study about the dumps, the landfills all around our coasts. The bottom line. Yeah, that's a, that's a start. Okay, that's a great start. Dave, and uh, as a start, go read Dave's piece at thenation.com. Dave Lindorf. Thank you, Dave. Thanks this for having me on, Tom. Tom Hartman program. It is absolutely my pleasure, David. And anytime. Oh, let's see here, Mike in Cleveland, Georgia. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Oh, the stars have all come together here today. How's uh, that? Well, if the Gulf Stream goes south on us, then you're going to have methane hydrate. That's the ELE things, and tankers don't float on bubbles. 
the uh, energy thing, we can break the monopolies. I, my family suggests I don't do it, but I, I've been studying about 10 years. I'm an iron worker, welder, millwright, fabricator, engineer type, and I got run over after Katrina. And I've been sitting around the house studying on free energy technologies. One of them that struck me was John Cyril. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he came up with a permanent magnet motor. Well, they won't let you patent that because it's not permanent. The magnet wears out in 80 or 90 years. But if you think of a magnet as a battery, it's an 80 or 90 year battery. You take a 90 year battery and you stick it up against a bowl of mercury and now you can create a vortex. You can drive mercury with a magnet. That overcomes stasis. Wait a minute. Mercury is a non-ferrous metal. It, it yes, sir. is drawn look to magnets? I didn't know that. Look, well, it don't have to be mercury. It can be any kind of a manufactured weighty material that has a, 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 a positive or negative uh, ion to it that can be driven. If you can drive mercury, you can overcome the stasis problem that you got to overcome to use a permanent magnet motor. Right. If well, you, you know, we make generators and motors out of permanent magnets, but the problem is that to extract that stored magnetic energy, you have to introduce motion, and motion requires yeah, some external you're kinetic you're, source. You're, you're, putting a, you're putting the mercury in motion, so now you put a paddle in your fluid and you use that to turn your generator, and your magnet is generating for you. Any moron, any two morons sitting in a garage, they can order mercury right now from the mining outfits, and the motors that you attach to it can be a sundry. It's a freestanding self you know, when I lived in Germany, I had a friend, his name was Horst von Heyer, who had this elaborate uh, workbench in his home. And he spent the last 10 years of his life trying to come up with a, a basically a perpetual motion machine. And it involved permanent magnets, trying to figure out a way. Only he was, he ultimately, he started out with physical things, you know, mechanical things, and ended up with digital things, thinking that, you know, with transistors and whatnot, he could change the electrical fields fast enough to basically extract some energy from these uh, magnets. But never succeeded. I, you know, he died I, frustrated with that. I went through all that. I went through all that, and I was yeah. sitting up one night watching a, a cowboy, and they talked about Quicksilver, and I thought, Quicksilver, that's mercury. Well, they use that in uh, limit switches and all different kinds of things. Sure, so it will carry but it's non-ferrous. I mean, if you want it to be attracted to a magnet, you'd have to so figure out a way to, to permeate that mercury with very, very fine you know, or, iron filings. Or, or any other heavy fluid, but if you... Yeah. If you'll look it up on YouTube, that's how I found it. I thought mercury and magnetism. I just looked it up. Anymore, Fascinating stuff. Mike, thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I, I, I've got to say I'm very skeptical about any kind of perpetual motion machine, and I, and I think that skepticism is justified. But that said, magnets absolutely fascinate me. And, uh, you know, who knows where we're going to go with that. We'll be, you know, they used to make fun of solar panels and say, that's never possible. We'll be right back. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and picking up your phone calls. Pete in San Bernardino, California. Hey, Pete, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Every day, every day. Thank you. Hey, the problem, the problem with the, the, the heat, the smoke, and all the causing the climate to change. Why don't we go back to geothermal energy from the earth? That could be used also to desalinate water from the ocean. And it's free. It wouldn't cost a dime. You're absolutely and it right. It wouldn't make no smoke. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And and this, I, I, you know, uh, one of my neighbors is in Iceland right now. Um, it, I, Reykjavik. I've, Louise and I have been there. In fact, we did our show from there a couple of years ago. And it, it was in November. It was in the middle of a massive snowstorm, and uh, the entire city is heated with hot water that they get from drilling down into the, you know, I mean, basically the, the island is on a volcano. It's like Hawaii. Um, it's all geothermal energy. They've got giant greenhouses filled with tropical plants. They're growing bananas in Reykjavik, Why Iceland. Why don't we all do it? Why don't all of us do well, that? Well, a lot of us could. You know, there's large chunks of America where there's access to geothermal uh, heat. I, I don't it's know if you Tom. It's everywhere. There's well, hot. It, it, it depends. I mean, you know, you, you say in some places you can hit geothermal heat with a relatively short drill and another place like, you know, around Yellowstone. I mean, you've got the, the geysers and things oh, yeah. in other places. Right. It's uh, you know, I, I don't think it, it's viable in Michigan, frankly. Um, you know, I've We're drilled wells the, in Michigan and the deeper you go, the, the colder it gets. <laughs> <laughs> We're missing the boat, Tom. Yeah. We're missing the boat. Yeah, we're missing right a lot of boats. Of and, and, you know, it's and right you've got all this wind off the coast of California, and now they're just starting. You know, I, uh, Governor Newsom has, has uh, I believe, has permitted offshore wind farms. They're just starting to catch that. They've been doing this in Denmark for forever, you know, for, for yeah, I mean, it's a, well, hell, they've been doing it in Holland, literally, you know, for forever, the, the old Dutch windmills from the, from the 10th century. Um, it, yeah. So it, this is not... You know, new, innovative, radical, weird technology that would decarbonize our atmosphere. We did not use carbon until about 150 years ago. That's when we started seriously burning coal and oil and, and only about 100 years ago, natural gas. 
This is all real recent in the history of America. We read about the American Revolution and all those guys. None of them used oil. They used whale oil for their can for their candles and or for their uh, lamps and things. Right. Uh, you know, we it's need like, to catch up. We yeah. need to catch up with the old days. There you go. <laughs> Back to the future, Pete. <laughs> Thank you very much for the call or, or, or forward to the past. I guess would be the the phrase. So anyhow. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? Hey, I love you, Tom Harmon. Look Back here, at you, uh, Morris. Uh, we we we're gonna what we y'all talking about tr- trillions of dollars, two trillion, three trillion dollars. We're gonna come in with another trillion, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna buy out the fossil fuel industry. We're gonna give them a trillion dollars, give them their money. When people die, they give you some money. So you lost your lost one, your loved one. Gonna give them some money. We are buying out the fossil fuel industry. Now, once we buy out the fossil fuel industry, now we've addressed climate change, right? Global warming and, mm-hmm. and the Green New Deal and the Blue New Deal. Well, keep going by. Then we've also addressed lobbyists, right? Alec, donors, we've addressed all that. That's the only way out. Give them their money and buy out the business. Look at all this equipment and jobs we will now own. If we don't do it no other way, forget it now. You say, you can't do that. Yes, you can. They got a thing called eminent domain. Now, what eminent domain means is we didn't come to join. We came to take over. See, that's what eminent domain. They got it all over the country. So that's what we're coming in with because we cannot allow a private industry to destroy the entire world. You know, I'm 60. I'll be old, man. I'm getting up there. But when I was about, about 50 years ago, I was in college. I took an upper division political science class. I was about 19 years old. And I remember reading in this book where the, the chief justice said, listen, we owe nothing to future generations. Oh, well, you know, geez. that brother was no Native American. That guy was. But see, I didn't have that sophistication back then. I was just a kid, right, going to a state university and everything. But that's what he said. Now, those are ideas that are prevalent today. People don't feel we owe tomorrow nothing. And we ain't got to worry about tomorrow. Right. We're just worried about right now. So anyway, back to my point, we're going to buy out the fossil fuel industry. That's going to be the Democratic Party uh, slogan, whatever, because the Republicans, their slogan is going to be, we're not racist. Okay, y'all run with that. <laughs> ours is going to be, ours is going to be, we are going to buy out the fossil fuel. You're communist. Well, no, 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 no. Well, we're trying to save humanity. Morris, See, I just looked up the market capitalization of ExxonMobil. And yeah. uh, it is $249.5 billion. It's a quarter of a trillion dollars. With, that, with a quarter of a trillion dollars, you could buy all the ExxonMobil stock in the world. No, no, hold on. I ain't finished. Now, I need a commission on this. I need a commission. I just take 1%. Just give me 1%, and then since I'm already taking Social Security, I'm good to go. I don't want to fill out no new paperwork because I got some money. We're going to take my commission, and we're going to donate it to public schools. Mm-hmm. When you find out about me, you'll find out, oh, now I know why he's like that. But anyway, get ready to buy out the fossil fuel industry. <laughs> if you're running for public office, that's your messaging. You got it? Okay, yeah. thank you, Tom. Yeah, thank you, Morris. I agree. I, you know, I, I didn't realize uh, ExxonMobil's market cap was that low. I thought it was probably trillions of dollars. But it's 249.50 or 0.22. I see two different numbers here. But basically a quarter of a trillion dollars. So with a trillion dollars, you could probably buy two or three of the major oil companies or at least enough of their stock that you could control their board of directors and change the way that they behave. Of course, everybody would freak out and say, oh, you're trying to turn America into Venezuela because Venezuela owns their own oil, right? (laughs) The the Venezuelan oil company is uh, owned by the government. Karen in Bolingbrook, Illinois. Hey, Karen, what's on your mind? Hi, I'm calling because um, you were talking yesterday about uh, people 
uh, letting you know what activism they've been doing. Mm-hmm. And today on climate change, and that's mine. And I'm in the Citizens Climate Lobby, and Great. our whole thing, thanks, um, is about trying to get a carbon price. We're actually up, you know, for a carbon fee and dividend, which you were talking about yesterday. Mm-hmm. But right now, with the reconciliation coming, we feel like this is just about the only chance we're going to get anything done about climate. So we're making a huge push to have people call their senators to ask them to put that you know, in the bill, because we've, we've heard that they are actually talking about it. It's on the table. Mm-hmm. So I, I wondered if I could share with your listeners that uh, CCL has a really simple website you can go to. Please. Um, sure, it's cclusa.org slash Senate. And when you go on that website, it has a, a pre-written email that you can just click to send after you put your contact info in so you, they can figure out which ones your senators are. Mm-hmm. And after that, you can make the phone call, which is also quite simple. They have they have a script. You can you know say exactly what it says if you want, but you can add lib too, which is even mm-hmm. more powerful generally. But we're trying to get as many people as we can to let them know because we are aware that they do keep account of how many calls and emails they get they on do. certain topics. And Absolutely. yeah, we've sent thousands all over the country by now to all the senators. So anybody that wants to do something after all these moving calls about climate change it's one thing we can all do and it seriously takes about 10 minutes tops for the emails and the phone calls right and this is the citizens climate lobby cclusa.org and then in this case slash senate if you want to if you want to contact the senate right but you don't type out the citizens climate lobby part right it's just, just cclusa.org Karen, wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, the sooner I the better, because they're talking about that bill and tying it up. Yeah, I get so. it. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much. Yep. David in Canterbury, Connecticut. Hey, David, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for all your help. Uh, I wanted to expand on something that you talked about earlier about the climate crisis and people that are outside and noticing these nuanced changes. I want, I want you to know and all the listeners to know that here in Connecticut, we're experiencing one of the coolest and um, rainiest Julys I've ever seen. And being outside... You got our rain. I know. (laughs) Tom, and it's it's weird. Uh, I've remarked to my wife that there are no bugs this year. There's no mosquitoes. I mean, give me a... I can't believe it. There are are no songs. We have a songbird die-off, Tom. And Connecticut's Agriculture Department can't figure it out. Usually my, my, my fields are dotted with beautiful robins there are none tom i haven't seen a i haven't seen a blue jay in two years it's it's unbelievable and and with the amount of rain and coolness i've been i've been growing produce for 60 years tom i'm always outside uh with with, with the amount of rain and coolness it, it the vegetables mature much slower there are fewer of them and it causes it causes a uh, fungus that you know the only way you can fight it is with, with some kind of copper oxide you know and mm-hmm. uh, a fungus copper sulfide and it's just awful Tom it, 
it's very, very sad, you know, the, the, the crisis that the birds aren't here. And I, I just wanted people to get to know that out here in Connecticut, we're experiencing some very weird things, Tom. Yeah, we are on the leading edge of the sixth extinction. Uh, some would argue we are well into it. In fact, I Thank would you. argue that we are well into it. Thank you, David, for your, your contribution to that conversation. Grim news. We've got a lot of work to do. And this $3.5 trillion piece of the reconciliation bill is a large chunk of doing that work. Please call your senators now. 202-224-3121. The number's also in my uh, daily rant today over at HartmanReport.com. If you didn't write it down, you can find it there. Our book today is Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster by Adam Higginbotham. This is from the prologue. <clears throat> Saturday, April 26, 1986, 4.16 p.m., Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station, Ukraine. Senior Lieutenant Alexander Logachev loved radiation the way other men love their wives. Tall and good-looking, 26 years old, with close-cropped dark hair and ice-blue eyes, Logoshev had joined the Soviet Army when he was still a boy. They had trained him well. The instructors from the military academy outside Moscow taught him with lethal poisons and unshielded radiation. He traveled to the testing grounds of Semipalatinsk in Kazakhstan and to the desolate East Urals Trace, where the fallout from a clandestine radioactive accident still poisoned the landscape. Eventually, Logachev's training took him even to the remote and forbidden islands of Novaya Zemlya, high in the Arctic Circle, and ground zero for the detonation of the terrible Tsar Bomba, the largest thermonuclear device in history. Now, as the lead radiation reconnaissance officer of the 427th Red Banner Mechanized Regiment of the Kiev District Civil Defense Force, Logoshev knew how to protect himself and his three-man crew from nerve agents, biological weapons, gamma rays, and hot particles by doing their work just as the textbooks dictated, by trusting his dosimetry equipment, and when necessary, reaching for the nuclear, bacterial, and chemical warfare medical kits stored in the cockpit of their armored car. But he also believed that the best protection was psychological. These men who allowed themselves to fear radiation were most at risk. But those who came to love and appreciate its spectral presence, to understand its caprices, could endure even the most intense gamma bar bombardment and emerge as healthy as before. As he sped through the suburbs of Kiev that morning at the head of a, a column of more than 30 vehicles summoned to an emergency at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, Logoshev had every reason to feel confident. The spring air blowing through the hatches of his armored scout car carried the smell of the trees and the freshly cut grass. His men gathered on the parade ground just the night before for their monthly inspection were drilled and ready. At his feet, a battery of radiological detection instruments, including a newly installed electronic device twice as sensitive as the old model, murmured softly, revealing nothing unusual in the atmosphere around them. But as they finally approached the plant later that morning, it became clear that something extraordinary had happened. The alarm on the radiation dosimeter first sounded as they passed the concrete signpost marking the perimeter of the power station grounds, and the lieutenant gave orders to stop the vehicle and log their findings. 51 rochins per hour. If they waited here just 60 minutes, they would all absorb the maximum dose of radiation permitted Soviet troops during wartime. They drove on following the line of high voltage transmission towers that marched toward the horizon in the direction of the power plant. Their readings climbed still further before falling again. 
Then, as the armored car rumbled along the concrete bank of the station's cooling canal, the outline of the fourth unit of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant finally became visible, and Logoshov and his crew gazed at it in silence. The roof of the 20-story building had been torn open, its other upper levels blackened and collapsed into heaps of rubble. They could see shattered panels of ferro-concrete, tumbled blocks of graphite, and here and there the glittering metal casings of fuel assemblies from the core of a nuclear reactor. A cloud of steam drifted from the wreckage into the sunlit sky. Yet they had orders to conduct a full reconnaissance of the plant. Their armored car crawled counterclockwise around the complex at 10 kilometers an hour. Sergeant Vlaskin called out the radiation readings from the new instruments, and Logoshov scribbled them down on a map, hand-drawn on a sheet of parchment paper in ballpoint pen and colored marker. One Rochin per hour, then two, then three. They turned left, and the figures began to rise quickly. Ten, thirty, fifty, a hundred. Two hundred fifty Rochins an hour, the sergeant shouted, his eyes widening. Comrade Lieutenant, he began, and pointed at the radiometer. Logoshev looked down at the digital readout and felt his scalp prickle with terror. 2,080 rochins an hour, an impossible number. Logoshev struggled to remain calm and remember the textbook to conquer his fear. But his training failed him, and the lieutenant heard himself screaming in panic at the driver, petrified that the vehicle would stall. Why are you going this way, you son of a bee? Are you out of your effing mind? If this thing dies, we'll all be corpses in 15 minutes. Part 1, Chapter 1, The Soviet Prometheus. At the slow beat of approaching rotor blades, blackbirds rose into the sky, scattering over the frozen meadows and the pearly knots of creeks and ponds, lacing the Pripyat River Basin. Far below, standing knee-deep in snow, his breath lingering in heavy clouds, Viktor Brukhanov awaited the arrival of the nomenklatura from Moscow. When the helicopter touched down, the delegation of ministers and Communist Party officials trudged together over the icy field. The savage cold gnawed at their heavy woolen coats and nipped beneath their tall fur hats. The head of the Ministry of Energy and Electrification of the USSR and senior party bosses from the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine joined Brukhanov at the spot where their audacious new project was to begin. Just 34 years old, clever and ambitious, a dedicated party man, Brukhanov had come to western Ukraine with orders to begin building what would become the greatest nuclear power station on Earth. Midnight in Chernobyl. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.